Stephanie is going to come up and read our passage from Mark's Gospel, Mark 16, 1 through 8. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome bought spices so that they could go and anoint Jesus' body. Very early on the first day of the week, just after sunrise, they came to the tomb. They were saying to each other, who's going to roll away the stone from the entrance for us? When they looked up, they saw that the stone had been rolled away, and it was a very large stone. Going into the tomb, they saw a young man in a white robe seated on the right side, and they were startled. But he said to them, don't be alarmed. You are looking for Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has been raised. He isn't here. Look where, here's the place where they laid him. Go tell the disciples, especially Peter, that he is going ahead of you into Galilee. You will see him there, just as he told you. Overcome with terror and dread, they fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. Because they were afraid. <laughs> Have you ever wondered what those first, uh, what those people who first encountered Jesus? the resurrected Jesus were thinking? What were they even expecting? How do you anticipate something that has never happened ever before without either just being like sentimentally hopeful or just plain nuts, you know? What were these women trying to achieve? Well, for one, Mary and Mary and Salome arrived bearing spices. We are told that. Jewish burial practices expected some sort of preservation of a dead body in a crypt. And then they'd come back later and they'd inter the bones and put them in a bone box in ossuary. In short, these women showed up to do the sad work of undertakers. They were funeral directors. What they encountered, though, freaked them out significantly. And I, I wonder which was more scary to them, the angel that shows up or the lack of a body. Like, there's, there's, there's almost like overload of too, too many crazy, strange things. As I've considered the resurrection of Jesus that we celebrate and proclaim on Easter, which mysteriously and miraculously includes us those who trust in Jesus and follow him in baptism and are raised in our lives. I've been bothered. Been bothered that I probably wouldn't have been one of the ones who would have been around on that first Easter morning. Bothered that even if I had, I wouldn't have had anything close to the sort of imagination that could have computed this, that could have made sense of it all. Because honestly, no one did. Bother that the, the brilliance of this giant twist, this climax 
of God's story, the cross and resurrection would have just gone way over my head. It would have sailed right by me. I'm bothered that in some ways it still does. Because sometimes the resurrection seems like too much of a non sequitur. Like it comes out of nowhere a little bit. I mean, I know Jesus died on the cross, and if you ask most people, Christians or non-Christians, about Jesus, about Holy Week, they'll probably have some beginnings of a description of what Jesus have said, what Christians have said about the cross. Or they'll start to form some vague atonement theology that they've heard through the grapevine. But if you ask about the resurrection of Jesus, the faces you'll get on that. People are largely mum about it or just completely confused. It's like there's not much of a story for it to fit into. Not much of a context. The resurrection of Jesus then becomes abstract and unwieldy. People either describe it as as so cosmic that it doesn't personally affect me or, or just individualistic, something, some kind of metaphor. And, and they rarely say it's neither and they rarely say it's both, right? The older I get, though, the more curious I am about these things, interested in figuring out how things work, how we got here and where we're going, how things are made, how really good stories are written. I'm, I'm realizing, and my wife really gets on me for this, I'm getting more and more like prone to nerd out on like how the sausage is made, you know, like, and not, not literally sausage, so that is fascinating as well. You, you think that, that knowing and finding out this stuff would make you disillusioned or more unimpressed, but, you know, the saying goes like, we want to eat encased meat, but it's really unappetizing to know how it got there, right? But I find it really appealing, really fascinating. Recently, this takes the form of me spending far too much time and mental energy in my car listening to podcasts about my favorite television shows, because we are in the golden age of television right now, I think. I listen to these directors and writers and actors and editors and, and uh, screenwriters and I'm more and more and more impressed and enchanted with the episode that I just watched. This is by no means an endorsement. Uh, I'll, I'll do that. But right now, I'm really into Better Call Saul, right? And some of you know that's a spinoff. It's a prequel to Breaking Bad, all about the making of a sleazy lawyer named Saul Goodman. And if you haven't watched the show, spoiler alert, Saul Goodman is not his real name, but it sounds like Saul Good, man. You know? What's fascinating to me, though, is the amount of detail, the amount of storytelling that it takes to backfill details that make sense not just for the plot, but who the, each individual character is and who they're going to be, who we already know them as. Now we see their past. They each carry their own little worlds that come alive when the actors portray them. There's all this seemingly insignificant detail that's put into characters and plot development that's not insignificant at all. 
It's amazing when you get to that little Genesis moment, like the first time a character that you really know well, first time they show up in the prequel and you, and you know like that is going to be a bad dude right there. But he's just like some, some side character, right? Or, or when some throwaway comment that they seem to have is like really fraught and ironic. That the wallpaper becomes the foreground when you know where the story's going. There's no throwaway line at all. And then I think the end result, like I, I haven't done this yet, but I think if I go back and watch Breaking Bad after all this, I think the end product will be even more stunning uh, knowing all these ingredients that made up that story. You get the story before the story. I think it's also kind of amazing to watch this sort of thing because you get this, this feeling, kind of almost like a God's eye view a little bit, this omnis omniscience, this, um, this timelessness, the, the foresight and the wisdom that I don't normally possess. You get to know the ending and see the past all at once. And then when you listen to these behind the scenes podcasts and their banter, you, you realize the amazing amount of craft and care and risk that it takes to weave all these threads together. I've come to think that that is maybe a good analogy for our approach to reading scripture, especially having to do with Jesus, particularly in light of the resurrection, that we, we know the ending, we look back, but we lean forward. One biblical scholar that many of you guys know calls this reading backwards, being attentive to the threads that were there all along and asking for illumination to see. If you look at the Old Testament with, with these kind of crucified and resurrected New Testament eyes, you also look at it at the New Testament with these Old Testament anticipation and imagination. So let's take a few examples out of thousands of these. Like, we don't have time. There's another church that meets here after us, so we don't have time to do an exhaustive survey of these, but I just want to look at a couple. Uh, a, a couple of examples that kind of begin to, to show this backstory of deliverance. A small sample. And, and maybe this will help spark you guys in your, your own Bible reading. Um, this sort of viewing that as a prequel to the resurrection of Jesus and it's all set up and it must be interpreted in its light. Let's consider some of the expectation, even the deeply buried expectation that has been unearthed, that's been raised as the Marys and Salome encounter the angel in the empty tomb of Jesus who's been crucified and resurrected. Two of these examples I, I, I want to talk about you encounter in the songs that they've sung. His songs are powerful, right? There's a lot of meat in those songs today, but, and most of you probably haven't heard those songs before, but you guys sang them beautifully, right? There, there's something, there's a framework to fit into, and, and, and that, that banjo riff will be in your head all day. Thanks, Wilson, that's great. So let's look at some of the songs. And while ancient Jews didn't have hymn books, I imagine they did have some songs over and over that they would sing that were familiar. 
if they had hymn books, these would be the dog-eared pages where they'd have yellow corners and they'd have little pencil, faded pencil marks in the margins. Think of a psalm like Psalm 6. Have mercy on me, Lord, because I'm frail. Heal me, Lord, because my bones are shaking in terror. My whole body is completely terrified, but you, Lord, how long will this last? Come back to me, Lord. Deliver me. Save me for the sake of your faithful love. No one is going to praise you when they are dead. Who gives you thanks from the grave? Who gives thanks from the grave indeed? That question is rhetorical, but the answer for the entire history of everything has been the same. Nobody. (laughs) Ever. Until now. In Jesus, the grave, Sheol, the wall of humanity's devastating end has now become a door into eternal life in victory. Playing in the background of this Jewish story, the story of God choosing a people and promising them life and intimacy and flourishing, has often been the sad, sad song. Who will praise you from the, the grave? It's a song of grief. It's a song of fear. It's a song of humiliation, of instability, of desperation. It's a song of death. It's the song some of us know by heart. Some of us hear it less than others. Some of us just stop up our ears and like hum so we can't hear it. Some of us can't sleep at night or hear ourselves think because this song is so loud, the song of death. We all know this grave tune. And the grave always wins. Such was the assumption of the Marys and Salome. Their primary concern was a grave concern. They were doing work motivated by the grave. It was a thankless job because who thanks you from the grave? (laughs) Unlike the other Gospels, Mark's original ending doesn't include an appearance of Jesus at all. There's no mistaking him for the gardener like Sarah read last week. There's no fish fry like in Luke that we'll hear next week. In Mark, there's just absence. But, but the grave party does kind of have an MC. Well, like that's, a, that's the craziest thing in this story to me. What we might consider an angel, though it never really says it's an angel, it just says it's a young man clothed in a white robe freaking people out and saying, don't be freaked out. And that's what angels do in the Bible. <laughs> they say, don't be afraid. And everyone is megaphobos, right? Like, very afraid. And side note, I also think it's really cool in Mark's gospel, when Jesus is being crucified, um, one of his followers is seized by the Roman guards and he runs away and it says that it was a young man that uh, just had like a white sheet on and he ran away naked. And like no one knows who this dude was, and it's like a really strange note. Now, and some, a lot of people think it was Mark himself, like the writer. Um, now that Jesus has defeated death, there's a confident, fearless, and well-clad man proclaiming his rising from the dead, wearing a white robe. 
Don't be alarmed, he says. You are looking for Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has been raised. He isn't here. Look, here's the place where they laid him. Go tell his disciples, especially Peter, that he was going ahead of you into Galilee. You will see him there, just as he told you. And also, another side note, he singles out Peter. And that's, that's not really singling Peter out. Peter, Peter probably, if, if it wasn't for this, might have gone the way of Judas and thought he was beyond being told about this good news, that the good news didn't apply to him because he had denied Jesus. So go tell Peter, because Peter's included in this too, even though Peter ran, even though Peter denied. Jesus is going ahead of you. Indeed, he's gone ahead of you and I too. It's here that we rewind to the director's cut. And we realize that the place of death isn't at all a place of abandonment like we once assumed or like maybe we always assume in our daily life as if God wouldn't be there. We get so afraid and we think we're abandoned. We, like Jesus from the cross again reciting another song my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? As if God wasn't there. That place of shame though wasn't cut off. That place of hurt in us or that place of abuse isn't a place of forsakenness or absence. But because of what Jesus has done, it becomes a place of faithfulness and presence. Jesus is there with you and I because he was there for you and I. That's, that's the good news, right? Psalm 139 lets on to this. If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, this is grave language, you are there. What if we lived our lives with that sort of awareness, that sort of expectation, that we might turn a corner and God was already there? In the good stuff and especially in the bad stuff. What if we knew because of the cross and the empty grave that no low or no high was beyond what Jesus has tasted, what he's experienced, and where he's present for us and with us. And it's just with these two examples that you start to see how the resurrection supercharges our Bible reading. It begins to renew our minds. It causes us to sift back through the entire history of God with his people because we've seen what it really looks like for God to make a way to forever be with his people. All these shades and shadows now we see in light. All these hints and prequels are like, uh, I think the word is, they're like Easter eggs. <laughs> Little treats for us to find if we have eyes to see and ears to hear. And as I was reading through this and thinking through some of the stories that just kind of jar, that kind of stick out for me, I could not get out of my mind um, this, this Old Testament story that these sad, kind friends of Jesus set about the task of body preservation and bone preparation. I, I couldn't shake this story off. It rubbed up against some of these resurrection stories and threw off sparks that, never, that I had never really noticed in that story before. 
It's a story most of us at least vaguely know. But I don't know about you, I've never connected it with the Easter story. It's a story of Ezekiel and the dry bones. Why wouldn't we think about that when we think about resurrection? Like most of the Hebrew prophets, Ezekiel's job was to call God's people to repentance, to show them renewal, to bring them back to awareness of the ways God's people have strayed from their God, ways they've been unfaithful, and they use relationship, marriage, language about infidelity or disobedient or the ways they've drifted like sheep gone astray. And Ezekiel uses this language a lot. Trying to remind God's people of their shepherd, their good shepherd, not like the shepherds who would exploit them or take advantage of the people or hurt their flocks, but the good shepherd that lays his life down for a sheep. In the midst of all this, predators have crept in Israel from within and from without. And God's people live in fear and uncertainty. They become refugees without a place to be. And their future's all too up in the air. And then the Lord brings Ezekiel to a precipice of a valley to put in him a vision. He looks over the edge and all he sees is death and decay. Probably a mass grave. (laughs) Surely this is exactly what the Marys and Salome were expecting to see. Death and decay. Surely this is what some of us in our own relationships, in our neighborhoods, in our lives, expect to see death and decay. Ezekiel says, he asked me, son of man, can these bones live? I said, sovereign Lord, you alone know. That's a good way to answer God if he talks to you. Then he said to me, prophesy to these bones and say to them, dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. This is what the sovereign Lord says to these bones. I will make breath enter you, and you will come to life. I will attach tendons to you and make flesh come upon you and cover you with skin. I will put breath in you, and you will come to life. Then you will know that I am the Lord. Where all the evidence seems to the contrary, where all our own experience is bleak, The Lord asks, can these bones live? And then the Lord gives his very self, his very life and breath to affect healing and renewal and restoration that is otherwise impossible, that is otherwise inconceivable. Sovereign Lord, only you know. Here's the next slide, Jay. Those bones have, that have been dried up, that hope that has been gone is now reanimated. The grave has been opened. You've been brought out of there. This is the Easter story. This is the prequel. This is the good news of Easter, my friends. For those of us who are in Christ, we've known and seen and become the answer. Can these bones live? Yes, indeed. 
They live in Christ and they live in you and me. For those of us who do not know Christ, who haven't tasted his goodness or offered your whole self for his whole self, can these bones live? Yes, indeed. He's ready to receive you in baptism and ready to receive you and include you in his eternal life. Trust him. Join him. Believe the good news. Be baptized into his death and raised into new life. Or maybe you identify with Ezekiel's crowd. Living in disobedience or casually drifting away from God. Can these bones live? Yes, indeed. Open your grave and come out of it. Into the land of his inheritance. There you'll live not out of fear or lack or secrecy or rebellion but as a beloved daughter or son, because that's who you are. For those of you who feel like Peter, (laughs) and you're maybe beyond the pale, can these bones live? Yes, they can live. Go tell Peter and the rest of the disciples. That's who God will build his church on. For those of you who feel dried up and hopeless, can these bones live? Yes. Indeed, I don't know how they can live. All the evidence seems to point in a different direction. But Jesus has risen from the dead. He is our hope personified. His spirit will breathe new life into you. Can these bones live? By God's spirit, yes, they can live. That's what we say. He is risen. He is risen indeed. Hallelujah. Can these bones live? Yes, they can. Yes, they did. And yes, they do. Amen. Pray with me. Father, we thank you for this surprising story. And we all too often identify with these these women who go expecting death and and are met with with eternal life. Lord, help help us never shake that. Help us never not be a little bothered by that. But the kind of bothered that is affected and imprinted with it. Lord, where we're hurting, let us remember that mantra. Can these bones live? And and let us remember your answer every single time now that Christ has risen. Yes, indeed, they can. They do. Father, we thank you for, for your craft, for your artistry, for your sense of humor. To be pointing this way forever and No one could see it. No one knew. (laughs) And then you did this creative work in your son. Lord, help us marvel at that. Help us never lose the excitement about that and the wonder and awe of it. Lord, empower our imaginations and our Bible reading. Soak us in your word so that we can 
we can see that, we can see all those hints. Put that story into our hearts so that we can tell it. Father, I thank you for your son, Jesus, who you gave because you so love this world. You gave him on the cross and you rose him from the dead by your spirit. We thank you, Lord. We pray in that strong name. Amen.